Uh, you resonate with pray again our great God we invite you to speak here we are a people much distracted our hearts are heavy burdened our cares are many and multiplied the world feeds us strife and contention the enemy by all his wiles would unsettle and make discontent our souls. And our flesh, Lord, knows all too well that we can't, or at least we struggle, to sit still for more than a few seconds at a time. Lord, speak your eternal word this morning. Holy Spirit, please do your eternal work. I need you to minister to me. We your people need you to minister to us. Would you call and would you speak? Be glorified here. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The story is told of a Quaker leaning on his fence one day, watching a new neighbor move in next door. Uh, he's watching them bring in all kinds of modern appliances electronic gadgets, plush furniture, costly wall hangings, all manner of these kinds of things. And the onlooker calls to his new neighbor, gets his attention and says, by the way, I just want you to know, if you, if you happen to find that you are lacking anything, neighbor, let me know and I'll show you how to live without it. Contentment um, can't be purchased. It may be thwarted by what we purchase or what we wish we could purchase, but it can't be purchased. The need for contentment is uh, not a new need, is it? Although sometimes we might feel like that in this culture, in this time. In the early 1600s, uh, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book that is uh, now considered a classic. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment was the title of Jeremiah Burroughs' book. I commend it to you. Um, Burroughs didn't, didn't write it as uh, that contentment that every Christian just automatically knows and it's easy. That was, that was not the title of the book. And Puritans are known for super long titles for things, so he would have done that. So, so for four centuries, at least, and I don't know, maybe longer, you think? This has been a trouble for the human heart and a trouble even for believers. Uh, Burroughs, in that work, writes this, My brethren, the reason why you do not have contentment in the things of the world is not that you do not have enough of them. The reason is that they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that was made for God himself. Contentment. A few minutes reading the book of Philippians will convince you that one of the major themes of this letter is joy. But we find in our passage today the secret, quote unquote, and, and Paul uses that phrasing. I don't love that phrasing, but I have a whole new appreciation for why Paul uses it purposely. He's very aware of the secret, mystical, cultic religions that are uh, 
in the land in his day and how they use this phrasing, how you can, if you are good enough, you can know the secret. And Paul turns all that on his head and he says, let me tell you, I've learned the secrets, if you will. But it's not the kind of secret that's only shared with a few that, that has to be earned through um, some special heroic acts. Rather, it's an open secret. And it's laid bare to the world, and it's commended to every one of us as believers. And yet, it must be learned. The first point for this morning, if you choose to write out your outline, is this. The believer's deep source of joy is contentment in Christ. Finding that the whole book has as a theme joy, Paul now, here near the very end, comes to a climax. The believer's deep source of joy is found in this root, contentment in Christ. He's approaching the end of the letter, so uh, this morning we're going to see some tie-ins with the rest of the letter. So you're going to want to have your Bible open in front of you this morning, and you're going to want to be able to see the ties for yourself, because if you see them, uh, it probably will just help you and help me in reading the book of Philippians for the rest of our lives in a, in a very uh, encouraging and, and beneficial and rich way. So hopefully you've got that. Philippians 4, join me. We'll pick up in verse 10 and read our passage. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, Paul writes, that now at last you have revived your concern for me, he says of the Philippians. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Pause there. The believer's deep source of joy is contentment in Christ. Paul connects the dots because having for about the third or fourth-ish time commanded these believers to rejoice or specifically to rejoice in the Lord, he gives the final command, or really he references it for the final time in verse 10, as he gives himself as a model, I rejoiced in the Lord, and he adds to it, I rejoiced greatly. And then he's going to explain how did I get to that place. This thing I've been talking about all along, where does it come from? Let's notice the flow of this passage quickly just to see what Paul is doing because if we see the flow, then we'll be able to more easily identify what the Spirit is teaching us. First, the flow, just notice it starts with rejoicing and thanks. That's the first half of verse 10. And then Paul's going to give two clarifications. The, the first clarifications, I rejoiced Greatly. Now, remember the, remember the scene, or if you didn't get it yet, understand it. Epaphroditus has come from the Philippians to wherever Paul is in prison, uh, likely Rome, although possibly Caesarea, or there are other options. But wherever Paul is in prison, this church has supported Paul financially, prayerfully, and in a number of other ways over the course of his years of missions and journeys. And yet there's been a period of time that they have not been able to support him in some way. So Epaphroditus comes to wherever Paul is imprisoned, and he brings a gift. We know that very clearly because it's alluded to in chapter 2, and the very words are said in verse 17, sorry, 18. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. 
okay? Paul receives it, and he writes back to them, and he says, I rejoice greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. It gives us first clarification. You don't need to write any of this down. You can, but you'll, you'll get the flow, and you'll see it again. His first clarification is, indeed, you were concerned before, verse 10, but you lacked opportunity. The first thing is Paul, in his tenderness to these believers, is, is letting them know, I've had genuine need, and it has been hard, and I'm thrilled, I'm rejoicing at your sending of this gift. But he doesn't want them to read, I rejoice that you've revived your concern at last. He doesn't want them to read that as a rebuke, like, I haven't heard from you guys in a while. What have you done for me lately? Man, I've been through it. Where have you guys been? No, just the opposite. His first clarification is, I, I knew that you were concerned. You have always been concerned. You just didn't have opportunity. Why not? Because they're not in the same place and because Paul is in prison. So it took a while for them to find a peculiarly bold man who would go to this known criminal and associate with him by bringing their gifts. They find that man, and we know that Epaphroditus risks himself in going. I always knew that you were concerned for me. That's his first clarification. And then his second is really verses 11 through 13, which I won't, won't read the whole thing now, but just 11. Second clarification, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along. What is Paul's point here? I rejoice greatly that you, revi you revived your concern and you've sent this gift. But I want to be clear, I'm not rejoicing in the gift. I'm not, I'm not now happy because I have money. I'm, I'm not now satisfied because of the goods. No, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. He'll say in verse 14, I'm rejoicing because you are sharing with me in my affliction. He's rejoicing in the friendship, the fellowship, and the relationship. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And in fact, he'll even be more selfless down in verses 17 through 20, which Lord willing we'll get to another time. And there he says, I'm rejoicing in the fact that this act of obedience and this act of faith done unto the Lord accrues to your account. I'm rejoicing that you guys will be rewarded by sharing with me. Clarification here is my, my joy is not my circumstance. It's not now that I am flush with all I need, now I'm happy. No, because I've learned to be happy in the Lord in all things. And then in 14, he'll close this little section with a reaffirmation. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Do you hear the pastoral heart of Paul? I love it. After spending three verses and saying, you know, look, I... I had all I need in a sense. Oh, I've suffered, and I've had want, and I've been penniless, and I've suffered and not known where my next meal was coming from, but I've really had everything I needed. And so the Philippians can hear that and say, well, then why did we send a gift, Paul? You spent three verses telling us you got everything you need. So for a second time, he clarifies this idea, no, no, but you sharing with me is good. It has restored my heart because of the friendship that is behind it. So, got it? There you go. There's 10 to 14. You want to put 
all of this together, you know the context. Uh, Verse 13, one of the most famously, most often quoted out of context verses in all of Scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now you've got a context. You've got a background. And so let's talk through it now we see it, and let's see what the Lord has to teach us. First, verse 10, if you want to write down contentment. What is contentment able to do? Contentment can rest in God's sovereignty and timing. Paul, who says he has deep joy, and he has magnified the Lord, not because of the reception of money, but because of the people and their hearts, and ultimately because of the Lord, is modeling for us how contentment can rest in God's sovereignty and timing. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have Revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. What we're going to find out is Paul has not just now rejoiced greatly in the Lord, but that he has been rejoicing in the Lord throughout, even when they arrested him wrongly, even when they slandered him and and his reputation, you know, tanked. Even when he became public enemy number one, he said, still, I rejoiced in the Lord. That's a supernatural thing that you and I need, isn't it? After being in prison, we know that the way that prison worked in that day, it was not one where you got three squares and a nice bunk and an exercise room. Your provision, they gave you the very bare, most meager of rations to just not die. Maybe one meal a day. But, but your sustenance would come from friends and family and others on the outside who would help support you. And so Paul had lack and had need even while he was in. And yet we find that he's going to rejoice even in that time of wanting, even in that time of hunger. How can Paul do that? Because he knows that the Lord will provide for him in his time. I knew that you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. We know, by the way, that the Philippians are not a well-off church at all. In fact, elsewhere, he writes to the Philippians and he speaks of how they gave out of their poverty, how out of their great need they graced Paul by providing for him. The, The timing of them being able to give is probably, at least in part, not only due to the danger and the risk and the distance, but due in part to the fact that they didn't have much means to begin with. And so he said, I never once thought badly of you. I rejoiced over you because I knew your hearts. I I knew your prayer for me. And ultimately, I found contentment because I knew God was sovereign. He would provide it, whether it would ever come through you, whether it would come through someone else, or whether it would never come. God's timing is perfect. I found these words a helpful encouragement for me this week. Lord, can you help me just be content in the fact that you're sovereign today? Can you you help me to be content right where I am here in this tiny little space, this little guy? can Can I rest in the fact that your timing is impeccable? It's it's never late, always on time, and occasionally early. Lord, I know that's you, but can you help me? 
I wish we'd have had uh, Paul's prayer journal from his time in prison. I don't know if he had one. I imagine there's probably a few psalms that he prayed. Maybe he had access to some scrolls, or likely if not, probably not, from memory. That was his prayer book. But to hear him cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what, what, Lord, Lord, when, Lord, Lord, how? But help me trust in your sovereignty and timing. I don't know what your struggle is this week. might be financial. I think there's good reason to think that maybe the primary application for Paul writing to the church in Philippi, I won't trace that. There's a couple of things obvious in the passage that point that way. I certainly don't think that exhausts their need. But I think their primary lack and therefore source of discontentment could have been financial need. But he's also talked throughout the book of their sufferings and their persecution, of the hardship to come and the need to stand firm. Has it been a world that's walking further away and now sees you more and more as an enemy, as the problem? The world is broken, and it's not as though Christians are the only ones who see it. The question is just where do people lie the blame? And so at times it might be on religious fanatics, fundamentalists, folks. Is that your duress this week? God knows our generation and his sovereignty and his timing. Maybe it's, maybe it's relational. Uh, maybe it's a, a failure. Maybe it's a, a lack of achievement or, or just a waiting on something, right? It could be anything that can breed a discontentment and a duress. Rest in God's sovereignty and timing. Because that is what contentment can do. And that is the believer's deep source of joy. Next, not only can contentment rest in God's sovereignty and timing, but contentment can feed on God's rewarding presence. Contentment can feed on God's rewarding presence. Again, starting in 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being both filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. When we get Philippians 4.13 wrong, when it is taught or applied or imagined wrongly, it's, it's usually in the realm of taking the all things out of context. Man, I can do anything. So, you know, through Christ, I'm, I'm pretty sure I, can, I could run an eight-minute mile. And you're like, Frank, that's not that impressive. For me, through Jesus only, right, or whatever it might be for you, your number would be lower. I can do all things. It's not entirely incorrect because all things does encompass all things. But the key is not the accomplishment of the thing. It is being content within the all things. And that is everything in Philippians 4.13. I can do all manner of success and yet through Christ still remain content. Wonderful debate if you decide you want to have wonderful discussion, and I really mean it, 
over lunch, which is harder, contentment in prosperity or contentment in need? You see, the point is that the secret is the ability to do both and to do both in such a way that what we experience is a joy and a deeper knowledge of the Lord which bears fruit in greater faithfulness. That's, that's what Paul is commending to these believers. Uh, notice here three pairs of contrasting circumstances that define the all things. Here's how we put the all things into, contra- into context, and they're all there in verse 12. Humble means and living in prosperity, or humble means and prosperous times. Uh, being filled and going hungry. In other words, being satisfied or, or actually, actually still longing for what I don't have. Or the third pair, abundance and need. Those three pairs define the all things in any and every circumstance, he says, in the midst of those three pairs. That's the all things time when, Paul says, I can experience contentment. So if we are going to learn to, the, to do the do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what, uh, what is the takeaway for us? I want to focus on three parts of Paul's example. First, I want you to notice how Paul feeds. This is all in your, your third point from this morning, but first notice how Paul feeds. He doesn't exactly say it here, but just by, by virtue of the fact in 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. Um, that, that, that's in the middle voice. Um, Grammar category, sorry. Middle voice is something where you both uh, have something done to you and participate in the doing of it. So a, a fuller explanation of knowing how to get along with humble means, and in fact, some uh, translators who, who uh, uh, expand this out will, will take that phrase and say, I know how to discipline myself or I know how to humble myself um, so as to get along with little. What is part of that disciplining? How does, how does that discipline of oneself learn to live on less in lean times? Answer, you have to feed yourself. You have to fill yourself from somewhere else. And has not Paul been, been telling us about how he does that throughout this whole letter? See, see Paul feed in verse 12. He's feeding on something else besides his circumstances and besides his resources. He is choosing, he's actively a part of the discipline and the humbling of himself. So, of course, in a, in a financial realm, this makes sense, right? Man, if you're on a budget and you're going to live by it, there's times where you just say, we're going to have to say no to those things. Or we're going to have to eat less of these things and more of these things. Or we're just going to have to wait to be able to do those things or whatever it might be. And that is hard for us. Maybe more so for us in this country who don't have to do that maybe as often as some. You see, contentment fills itself with Christ. We're going to see that more in just a moment. But it's inherent in, in the negatives here. But the feeding on Christ is also inherent in the positives. Because contentment not only will discipline itself to live on less by filling itself with Christ, but but contentment will focus itself to cherish Christ in the opposite times. What about when I am flush? What about when I, I have abundance? 
What about when the kid just graduated, right? And, you know, and I just got the new job and things are just going well. They're going swimmingly. I know, Paul says, the secret of contentment in that season. And we're like, I'm, I don't really need that. That's not much of a secret. I mean, things are good. Yeah, where is the contentment based and how long does it last is the question for me and for you. But Paul, having learned the do-all-things secret, can do the contentment even when he has all the stuff. Why? Because he doesn't cherish the stuff. He's already addressed this in verse 10. I magnified in the Lord greatly when I received your gift, but it wasn't because of the gift. It just said, wow, Lord, all this in heaven too? This is just a pointer to remind me how good it's going to be in you one day. And, and this is a discipline to learn, isn't it? This doesn't happen automatically. We have to train ourselves. We have to consciously turn our energies to focus on Christ and say, Lord, I thank you for this good thing. I thank you for what you're, you've done in, in my family or with my friend or this opportunity. Thank you. That's wonderful. But Lord, I just want to tell you, you are better even than this. And, and, and please, remember how the... the uh, was it in Proverbs? I was going to say the proverbist because I wanted to say the psalmist. Where the author of Proverbs write, Lord, two things I ask of you. Do not deny me. Please do not allow me to have so little that I may suffer lack and, and so basically steal and dishonor your name. This is a wild paraphrase, but you get the idea. And don't so bless me with so much that I so impugn your name. By, by thinking I don't need you anymore, right? You can find that verse. It's, it's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> contentment can focus itself to cherish on Christ in the full times, so much so that the author of Proverbs says, Lord, don't even let me have so much that I would be tempted away from my first love. And sometimes God's nose and his weights and his withholding of benefits are his greatest blessing. I can give you this or I can give you more of me. Which would you rather? Sometimes, praise God that he is all-knowing and he knows when best to give whatever gift. Contentment can feed on God's rewarding presence. So just see within this very book and within this very paragraph and inherent in the very secret of verses 12 and 13, there is this feeding that Paul does. Second idea I want to focus on of this example is presence, God's presence. Feed on God's rewarding presence because this, is, um, this has been throughout the book. Where has Paul already modeled the presence of God? Oh, I don't know, three times uh, just in the first nine verses right before this. Uh, look at verse 5. We'll start in four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit, your gentleness or forbearance we talked about last week be known to all men. The Lord is near. Paul has just exhorted them the reasonableness to not respond in kind when offended, when wronged. That's gentleness. That's forbearance. We talked about that. The ability to do that comes out of the knowledge that God is near, that he is here. So Paul has exhorted them in that. Feed on his presence so that you don't have to write 
all of the injustices necessarily done to you, but that you might be a, a peacemaker and one used of God. Not easy for our hearts, and yet part of the supernatural call given to us in Scripture, and Paul grounds it in the nearness of the Lord. Then look at the next two verses, 6 and 7, and, and look where this is grounded. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he tells us there, tell God, make your request known, and ask God. And he grounds all of that in what? God's peace will stand guard over your hearts. He grounds all that in the presence of God. If you will tell and if you will ask, then the peace of God will garrison you. Paul encourages us. You know what I love? You know what is been my favorite word in this passage this week? A word I've never keyed on before, but I, I, I think maybe now for the rest of my life it will be my new favorite word. It's repeated twice. It's the word learn. I have learned. I have learned. Contentment is not automatic. It is a process. And and so Paul is telling us how to learn it. And the presence of God is the fuel for it. Lord, I am not at peace. I am in turmoil. Great. Have you told me and have you asked me? Because if you do, then I will stand guard. My peace. And then just a third time here, the presence of God in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there is anything, any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So he says um, right there, direct your thoughts. And the things that you have learned and received and heard and, re and seen in me, practice these things. So he says pattern your actions. And where is it all grounded? The God of peace will be what? With you. The very passage before this, the, the last words before this passage were the presence of God. And so the Philippians would hear this and they would say, but Paul, but I'm, I'm worried for how, how I'm going to provide for my family. Paul, I'm concerned for, for, for what it will mean in the cutting off of relationships when they find that I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen in this circumstance. This really could, could eat me alive. I just don't know. And Paul says, the question is, is the Lord with you? There may be more to do, but there is never less than to dwell on the presence. Paul, in these pairs of phrases about humility, he himself has so internalized the very humility of Christ that he commanded back in, in chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Paul, exhorting that of other believers, has said, whatever, whatever else I had, I have chosen freely to humble myself, to give it up, to not cling to it, so that I can be more like my Savior. I've learned that, and I'm, I'm still learning that, he would say, right? I have not yet achieved it, he's just said in chapter 3. But guys, I've actually learned some stuff about that. He encourages them. And so the presence of God is what we need to practice. Paul wants to be like the eternal one who humbled, who humbled himself for him. 
I, I didn't choose this, um, this course. I didn't know this was in the curriculum. Um, but I guess I'm taking this class, aren't I? So teach me, Lord, because I need to learn. What opportunities do you have this week? Pausing here to just talk about feed and presence. Maybe, maybe you have a financial crush, crunch in your world today, and that's a place to practice feeding and practice his presence with you. Uh, maybe you have a scenario where you, you feel unappreciated or misunderstood. Maybe you have a, a scenario where you're waiting on something and you have been waiting, and it is, it is superhuman to stand up under it. Well, let the supernatural resources that are mine and yours in Christ be there for us. Feed on his presence. So you, you fill in the blank. What opportunities do you have this week? What opportunities do I have? Because I'm going to get to practice this week. And then third, uh, I want to focus in this example on the feeding, on the presence, and then on the rewarding. Contentment can feed on God's rewarding presence. How has Paul shown us the Father's reward throughout this book? Go back again to chapter 2 and verse 9, where Christ humbled himself. And then Paul writes in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And we noted as we were in that passage a while back about how, how the Father rewarded Christ's humility. We saw that humility was esteemed by God. We saw that humility was rewarded by God. He gave him a name, and he exalted him to a place. And both of those things happened out of his willing submission to his Father. And so as we feed on him and practice his presence, the thing that fuels us is the knowledge that, Lord, you will reward me even for this. I mean, you who have saved me, it, you, you, have, you who have covered my sins and overlooked my rebellion, and you who even now are infusing me, with new strength, uh, new strength, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is to be endued with power and ability. You in, infuse me with strength. And then if I use that strength rightly and grow in some contentment and I feed on you, and then you're going to reward me for all that. I love this gig. Yeah, it's not easy. But yeah, it's worth it. The, the reward of the Father is resonating in Paul's breast. And the question is, does it also resonate in ours? Others might not know or understand. Some may never see. But the Lord always sees. And he rewards particularly humility, but all manner of obedience and faithfulness and submission to him. Contentment can feed on God's rewarding presence. Last thought here under this third idea here of reward is just go back and let's read again uh, in chapter 3. Is not only will, will Christ be rewarded one day, he was exalted and he will be the name over all. Not only will you be rewarded one day, but there is reward even in the presence of the Lord now. Philippians 3.8, right? Remember these words? More than that, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value 
of what? Knowing Christ. Contentment will not only be rewarded, but contentment is itself a reward. Don't you want contentment? I do. I don't necessarily like all the stuff that pushes me towards it. But in the end, that is excellent. That is beautiful. And it is hard fought. It is learned. But it's an open secret available for every believer. And the surpassing value of knowing Christ today is part of what fortifies us to endure. Fourth and finally this morning. Contentment is being ruled by Christ. Contentment is being ruled by Christ. Again, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, Paul says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Uh, this is such a cool word that Paul uses here. There are two places where Paul is actually speaking right into the, the, the lies and the false teachings and the temptations of the day that the Philippians live in. One is the way he uses that word, I've learned the secret. He said all those ridiculous, mystical, false religions that have their secret initiation rites, the word that he uses for learn the secret is the idea of initiation rite. And he says, let me tell you the initiation rite to be a Christian. <laughs> well, first to be saved, you believe, but then the open secret is you find deep joy and contentment in Christ, but you got to learn it. So we dealt with the, the mystical religions. Now he's going to deal with the opposite end of the spectrum. The over-intellectual, uh, super brainy, egg-headed religion of the day called Stoic philosophy. The word he uses in verse 11 for content, and it's cool. He uses one word for content, and... He's talking about these guys. The other word for learned the secret, he talks about the other guys. But the word he uses there for learn to be content, it's a word that in other Greek literature of the day, the, the philosophers, especially the Stoics, uh, it was translated, we would translate it as self-sufficient. Contentment or to be content means self-sufficient or self-ruled. And that's exactly what the Stoics were selling. Uh, listen to Je Dennis Johnson. Um, give a few words to help us on this. The Stoics claimed that the wise person realizes that every experience, whether pleasurable or painful, is part of an inter interconnected matrix permeated by reason. Reason was their god, if you like. Thus, it is pointless to resent illness or injustice. The key to contentment, said the Stoics, was to become emotionally self-sufficient by insulating oneself from the variables of pain and pleasure. Don't ever get too high, don't ever get too low, just like live out of your brain, okay? One scholar sums up the Stoic conception of contentment this way. By the exercise of reason over emotions, the Stoic learns to be content. For the Stoic, emotional detachment is essential in order to be content. Doesn't that sound like fun? Paul takes the, the word that is translated, or we would translate self-sufficient, and he says, I have learned to be self-sufficient. That's the word he uses for contentment here. But you know what's so cool? He explodes its meaning. He says, by the way, if you know any Stoics, 
They want to tell you what self-sufficiency is. Let me tell you, contentment is not ruling yourself. Contentment is being ruled by Christ. And that's what he explodes by the use of this word. I can rule my emotion through reason, the Stoics say. Paul says, no, I can't rule myself at all. But Christ rules. Galatians 2.20 is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ rules. It is not a self-sufficiency. Go back to chapter 3, right? And, and, and there he says, I count all of these other things lost. I haven't done it myself. He says, um, I, I put no confidence in the flesh, right? This is the culmination of that theme that he's been bringing all along. I find contentment when I'm ruled by Christ. This idea of contentment, that it is only through the work of God in us, that is throughout the book. So let's track that as we close. First, notice that it's stated right there in verse 13. I can do all things because I'm self-sufficient. I can do all things because I have learned how to maintain my demeanor and balance at all times. No. I can do all things because of Christ. In fact, in Him or through Him, your translation will have one of those two words. I can do all things in Christ or through Christ because He is the one who does the work. He strengthens me. It's not me. I am not self-sufficient. But he is all sufficient for me. Amen. He is all sufficient for you and for me. Amen. Through Christ. Sufficiency to not tube the faith. Whether I win or lose, whether I, I feast, whether I go to bed hungry, sufficient for my joy in him. Philippians 4.13 is the fourth of four exhortations of this kind in the book, and it is the climactic one. No wonder that this verse is like on everybody's refrigerator magnet because it, it pulls together so much, but I just want you to see it. Uh, we've highlighted it each and every chapter, but there's one in each chapter where, where we see that the spine of the letter of Philippians is God's work in you, okay? Philippians 1.6, it's another famous one. You know it? Go ahead, flip there. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day, until the day of Christ Jesus. God himself is working in you, Christian. God himself takes concern for you. God himself has planned and purposed what he's doing to grow you in deep joy sourced in contentment in him. And he will never stop. He will finish it. That's, that's the point. 4.13. Go to chapter 2, the second time. We see one of the other vertebrae of God's work in us. 2.12. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Christian, God works his will in you. God is working his purpose in you. And he will never stop working that in you. No, he only works when I'm faithful. No, he doesn't. Praise God, because then after the first time you are unfaithful, you'd be dead because you wouldn't get back to faithful again. I wouldn't get back to faithful again. He is working for his pleasure, and he never stops. So he, he tells the Philippians, work out what God has worked in. Your salvation has a very real bearing on every disappointment that you're walking through in this storm of today. In, in this rainy season of the soul, the Lord himself is working in it, and he never stops. That's the second time he distinctly says, God works, so work. <laughs> and then in chapter 3, also verse 12, 312, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The one place in the whole book that could be maybe most misconstrued of Paul being self-sufficient, right? I press on, I fight, I strive, I run for the tape, I'm, I'm going the distance, I'm looking forward to that future glory, and I am fighting and I am working for all I'm worth, but I'm pressing forward to lay hold of something because I was laid hold of, because because through Christ, the Father reached out and grabbed me, and he won't let me go. And so, because he has a purpose in that, now I have the ability to strive and press and go. But it's only because he laid hold of me first. So, press on to lay hold of him. Through the gospel, the divine work of God is ever present in you, believer, and in me. And so contentment is just submission to the rule of Christ in our lives. Boy, that's easy. Whew, I'm glad I'll never get that wrong again. Right? No, I need to learn. I have to, I have to go to graduate school in learning how to pray, cast cares, and, and listen to his work. I have to learn to ask and, and learn to tell all things. All things means whatever circumstances. It is not a promise. I can do all things is not a promise for a select group of outcomes. It's not a promise for a, a select sphere of circumstances. In Christ, I can live here all the time. Oh, well, yeah, unless God decides different. All things does not mean that I win the trophy. Doesn't necessarily mean that I make the deal doesn't necessarily mean that I'm flush with cash. All things doesn't necessarily mean that life is easy and that on Sunday morning I don't have technical difficulties. Right? What it means is that you win Christ. What it means is that you're deeply known. What it means is that you have the greatest reward in all of the universe, and that is the very presence of God himself and the reward of knowing him now and the reward he gives later one day. Contentment is being ruled by Christ. So when you think of joy, I hope you've seen all the streams that for four chapters just come and converge in these five verses here. 
right before he begins to close out the book and understand it's contentment in Christ. That's the deep source of his joy, being ruled by him. Praise God, may it be so for us. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Oh, gracious God, our Father, we are a people much in anxiety. We are a people often distracted. We are a people grasping for what we don't have and sometimes banking our joy on what we do. And yet, Lord, you are doing your eternal work in your people. We thank you for that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you don't ever give up on us. Continue your good work. And this week, help us to learn to feed on the rewarding presence by your spirit that is in us. Might it bear fruit. Might it show itself more in our imperfect demeanor. And might it be to your glory, whether seen by coworkers and friends and even family members or whether known only to God and the hosts in heaven who look on. Lord God, let us know this deep source of our joy. Christ Jesus, come. Rule over your people. Rule over me and help me today. All this we ask for your glory in Christ's name. God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us today.